Good morning. Yeah, well done remembering that this is Sunday. It is truly a strange few days. The Bermuda Triangle of the year, as it were, between Christmas and New Year's. I almost want to say, hey, let's scooch together. It's okay. Stay where you are, but feel free to huddle up. <clears throat> I was, so I'm, I, I was put on this podcast called uh, Hardcore History by Stephen, a, a member of our congregation and here with us this morning. And um, it's, it's, it's by a guy, named, it's called Dan Carlin's uh, Hardcore History. And it's, it's the first time I saw it. I mean, if Stephen hadn't recommended it, I think I'd seen it before, but I totally ignored it after seeing the length of the first episode because it was, it's six hours long. It's just absurd. Yeah, it's just, he just goes on and on. He's, he's, everything he says is interesting, but there are these amazingly long episodes. But Stephen put me onto it, and so I, he gives me good stuff, so I started listening. And one of the episodes was about, um, about a, a, a group of folks, actually more than one, but one in particular, they, it was Japanese soldiers after World War II, after the war had ended formally in 1945, and they had been so indoctrinated, number one, into the, the war, uh, it's, it's a fight to the death, and until you die, essentially it's not over, which is an oversimplification, but it was, it was essentially that from the emperor. And, and secondly, uh, and so they thought that uh, that would be the case with other people too, so, so nobody, no, this war's not gonna end until everyone's dead, essentially. Um, and so that was kind of beaten into them, and also, number two, they were so ensconced in some of these southeastern islands and things in the forests. This one person in particular, just to take an example, continued to fight and continued to think that the Second World War was ongoing until the early 1970s. It's a true story. And so he gives you his name and um, they would drop leaflets and, you know, call out to him and try to find him. And he was just, he, he constantly thought that was a ruse and they were trying to trick him. Uh, and so he just, he didn't get the very true fact, would not accept the fact that victory had been won. Um, and so really, it's, it's a crazy example, it's a true example, but I chose it to illustrate the idea that really at the core of this beautiful passage, this is our last, um, this is our last sermon for now in the book of Isaiah. This is our sixth, I believe, sermon during Advent in Isaiah, which is some, a lot of the patristic, the early church fathers called Isaiah the fifth gospel, just so full of Jesus Christ. Um, it's mentioned, I think Isaiah is mentioned in the New Testament upwards of 600 times alluded to or, or directly referenced. But um, I mention it because this is really the point of this beautiful passage in Isaiah 52, where Isaiah is forecasting the exile of, of Israel, of Judah to Babylon, and, and uh, the even more closely upcoming scattering and genocide, really, of the tribe, the 10 northern tribes by Assyria, but then the exile, the future exile of, of Israel. But he's going to say, he's saying, you're going to come back. But he's talking about more than the fact that just the geopolitical resettling of the people from Babylon back to the promised land. And that's, that's very clear. But really what he's saying sort of as at the pinnacle of all that is he's saying, look, God is going to win a victory that's going to be, a com- it's going to start a complete cosmic renewal. He's gonna do it himself with no help from any of us. It's gonna change everything. It's gonna be for his people and for his glory. And I think a lot of us, are living still. So really the point of it is we get to receive that news, imbibe that news, be changed by that news, and then be the bearers of that news to these poor people in the forests of Burma or wherever they are that are still fighting. But a lot of times we live, and we'll get into this later, we live as if the victory hasn't been won. 
Is there, you know, is the, is the illustration perfect? No, because there is, the scriptures are clear, there is the victory having been won by Christ, by God through Jesus. There is still work to do, but not the decisive work has been done. The victory has been won um, in our lives. We get to, the, the work that we get to do is simply living in light of that victory and abiding in the one who's, who's won for us. So, so with no further ado, let me just jump into uh, point one, the restored city, which you really see Isaiah camping out in, um, in verses one through six here at the beginning of, of this passage in Isaiah 52, the restored city. He's talking all about this restored Jerusalem. And this is really, according to John Murray and others, um, his commentary, um, this is really talking about Israel's, like I said, return from Babylonian exile, which at this point in Isaiah's writing, he's, he's a prophet, right? What do prophets do? They, they prophesy. They, they talk about the current state of God's people, but they also uh, talk about what's going to happen in the future and how that's going to involve judgment, but also salvation. So what is Isaiah doing here? He's saying, look, you, you're God's people, but you've been breaking his heart. You've been giving him a bad name, and he's going to, this is something that as far back as Moses was prophesying at the end of Deuteronomy, at the end of the Torah, you are going to be exiled. You're going to be taken out of the land that God has given you, but he's not going to give up on you as a people. A remnant will return, something that had never happened before. Once a people is, is deported from their land, they, don't, they aren't ever allowed to go back. They aren't brought back, but they were brought back, true to the prophecy of Isaiah and Jeremiah and others. Um, so this is talking about the, the Israel's return from Babylonian exile and the, how your city will be restored. Um, but it's, again, it's more than that, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But verses five through six, in the, kind of in the middle of the passage Robin read, present the central problem, really not just for Israel, but for all of space and time and all of humanity and the whole scripture. And that is that God's children carry his name. Israel, and through faith in Christ, all those who are made children of God, who are the Israel of God, the church, we carry his name. We, as Christians, Christ is literally in our name. We represent the king, but he's saying to Israel here, you carry my name, and, but in the way that you're living, you're representing me poorly to the world. You're giving me a bad name. Um, verse five says, continually all the day, my name is despised. Um, and so the really, the central crux is how does God not give up on his people, um, but also not allow them to continue to give him a bad name? That's sort of the thing that drives scripture. How's this, the law hasn't been effective, right? Um, how do they give him a bad name? By disobeying him, by despising his word. And when you despise someone's word, your, your word is who you are. They're despising God himself, their maker and their savior and, and hating him. Um, and so in verse two, we see the consequences of that. What is Zion or Jerusalem? It's another name for Jerusalem. God's, it's, this, it's sort of a, um, a synecdoche. It's a sort of short way of saying my people when he says Jerusalem and he talks about the city. So when he talks about the city being restored, he's really saying my people are gonna be restored. I'm gonna do something that's gonna make my people new. It's gonna change their constitution. But in verse two, we see that she's called a captive. Now, literally, we know that, again, think first level of meaning. He's saying because of your sin and rebellion and hating me, you're going to be exiled and you're captive in a foreign land by under Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and then the Persians. Um, but you're going to be made not captive. You're gonna be sent home under Cyrus the Persian, foretold in Isaiah 45. Um, but more than that, so, so what he talks about here is that you kind of press into that some, sin makes us captive. Um, the law makes us captive. The good law that 
God gave to Israel, it exposes our inability to obey God and our desire to disobey. It actually, it actually, um, it doesn't just expose our inability to obey. It actually, it, it sort of rustles up in us a desire to break God's good law. So um, works righteousness, though, trying to measure up to God's standard in our own, on our own steam, in our own um, power, also makes us captive because it makes us think that we can measure up to God and we can keep his law, and it makes us proud, and pride enslaves us more than anything. It's the root sin. It's the root sin. So it blinds us and it hardens us to God, whom we think we're obeying. Um, and so really, we take a step back and we see that actually trust in the, in the promise of God and in his covenant and in his grace and saying, I'm going to do something for you that's gonna change all this and I'm going to save you with my own strength and my own hand um, in a way that you won't contribute to, in a way that's not gonna cost you anything. You're gonna be able to buy it without money, as it were, as he says here. But it's gonna cost me everything. And so we see, we see him promising that, promising that to Abram in Genesis 15, 6. Abraham is considered righteous through his faith in God's promise. And then in Habakkuk 2, 4, the, the just or the righteous shall live by what? Faith. So it's in, it's in there. It's in there, but Israel's, people, Israel's been enslaved by, um, by the law and by trying to um, keep, keep the law. And so we, we do the same sort of stuff. Whether, whether we're law breakers and we see that or we're trying to keep the law and we're trying to measure up to God in our, on our own, those, those things bring captivity. They bring slavery. So how is God gonna fix this? He, said, he does say, I will fix this. He says, verse six, my people shall know my name. And that's really, that's really Exodus three language. What's God's plan? He says, my people shall know my name. In Exodus three, what happens? God appears to, as Jesus says, the passage about the bush. He appears to Moses in a theophany, in a bush um, that's burning, but what? It's not consumed. It's not consumed. And in that moment, he says, take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. And he allows Moses to be in his presence, which in itself is a grace. But the fact that he's taking off his sandals shows us that we shouldn't, we shouldn't be allowed, but we are because God is gracious and he meets through, uh, through himself but through a mediator, as it were, through the pre-incarnate son, I believe, um, in this bush with Moses. And he reveals what? He reveals himself to Moses. He gives him his covenant name. He says, I haven't given this name to anyone else, but he says, I am. And I am the God who, or I will be, it can also be translated from the Hebrew. I, I, I am and I will be. I am that I am. I'm the definition of all things. So it's an ontological truth, but it's also more boots on the ground, he's saying, I, and he says this in this passage, I am the God who is with you and I will be with you. I am the God who is opening myself up to you. I'm revealing, God doesn't have to tell us who he is. If you, if you meet someone and they don't tell you your, their name, but you know that they know yours, they have an advantage. Your name says a lot of, about you and God doesn't have to reveal himself to us, but he's choosing to be vulnerable with Moses to, He's, he's basically offering, he's beckoning Moses and through Moses, the people of God who are sinful and enslaved into relationship with him, which is life. And that's really the language here. And basically God is, it's covenant language. It's God saying, I am inviting you into relationship and that requires me to be vulnerable. And I am the God who made all things and who is willing to open myself up and to be wounded by you in order to keep both sides of the covenant. Um, 
He's the God who's willing to be vulnerable. So how, how will he do this? Well, that's point two, okay? The return of the king. So we looked at the restored city, verses one through six. Let's jump into the return of the king here. Really the meat of this passage, in my opinion, or at least the crescendo. He says, in verses seven and eight, he says, I will come to you myself. Wow. Uh, when, I, when I read that, and partly because this isn't actually true, because I didn't know Michelle was gonna be here when I was, uh, at the time I was, I was writing this sermon, but she is here. Former covenant member and eternal uh, honorary member of Sojourn, certainly founding member of Sojourn Galleria, but Michelle and I share a love of many things, but one of them is Lord of the Rings and all things Tolkien. And so I had to, that, that being the case, and uh, also the fact that this is the end of the year and why not throw a little bit of Tolkien out uh, like fairy dust over the year um, and into and, and and to, and to back in the year to come as well. Um, but truly, when I, when I titled this second point of the sermon, The Return of the King, and it's so clearly full of God saying, I'm going to solve this by returning. I'm going to solve this by coming to you myself and making things right. I could not help but think of the Lord of the Rings and of the return of the king, the third part of the Lord of the Rings, where Aragorn, the king, he's been away. He's been away from, as he hasn't been, he's the hiding king. He's the humble hiding king. He's been protecting Middle-earth, but he hasn't been on his throne. He hasn't claimed his, his throne by rights. And at the end of the book, he does that, and he begins the process through his reign, because he's a good king, of making all things new. But what does he do before he comes to the city? Remember, the first point here is the, re, the, re, the restored city. And the king begins the process of restoring us, his subjects, but also through restoring us of the areas that we inhabit. He cares about Galleria. He cares about all, all these play, our neighbors, our workplaces, the streets, the fact that they're pockmarked with, with strip clubs and brothel. He cares about these things. So we're, we're going to get to that at the end more. Don't worry. But um, when he comes before he fights and, and wins victory through his sword in Minas Tirith, what does he have to, what does he choose to pass through? The mountain, right? He chooses chooses to walk through the mountain of death. He chooses, in a sense, it's one of Tolkien's sort of pictures and ways of saying, the rightful king is going to claim his kingship over Middle Earth, but it's gonna be at great cost to himself. And essentially, he, he walks through death in order to save his people. And that's just an, a wonderful picture of, of, of some of what God's, of Isaiah's prophesying here that God will do. Um, and let me, let's just look at a, a bit of it here. Um, he says, you shall be redeemed or bought, that word is a financial term, without money, verse three. That's, that's how God's gonna do this. How is that the case? Look at what follows Isaiah 52. We're all familiar with it. Uh, we're not all familiar. Many of us are familiar with it. It's the most, maybe the most, it's certainly the most famous servant song out of the four in Isaiah. It's Isaiah 53. Verses four and following say this, about this one to come. How is God gonna do this? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. How is God gonna do this? Here's how. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Peace is talked about in Isaiah 52, right? This is how it's purchased without money for us, but at great cost to him. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. 
And we like sheep, last verse, have gone astray. We have turned, hey, guys, in case you think that you might be the exception, listen to what Isaiah says here. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So God solves the problem himself through this servant. He says, I will come and do it myself. You will be redeemed without money, without cost to you. No cost to us, but infinite cost to himself because what? He himself, Jesus Christ, son of God, fully God, the creator become man was the payment. The infinite God was the payment required to make us what? Right, to give us peace, to save us. I mentioned Aragorn's passing through the, the paths of the dead before coming as king to Minas Tirith, but maybe an even better sort of thread in, again, the return of the king, the third part of the Lord of the Rings, um, to illustrate this, what, um, to what Jesus did for us is um, with the two little ones. There are many little ones in the Lord of the Rings, right? But the two that are the, the two main characters of the book, uh, Sam and Frodo, and I mean, one of the great genius strokes of, Return, of the Lord of the Rings is how Tolkien sets this story up where they come into possession of this ring of power that's been forged by an evil Lord who wants to dominate Middle Earth. And that's really a wonderful picture of the fact that Sauron's not the, he's not the, the rightful king of Middle Earth, but he has dominion. And that's what's happened. And, and here in this passage in Isaiah 52, God is saying, I'm taking it back. You see? And that's what we see playing out in the Lord of the Rings is that instead of taking it back by wearing the ring like Boromir wants to do and taking up arms against Saruman and gaining this power, what do they do? They do something that the enemy never, ever would have thought of because the enemy always thinks in terms of strength, overtly, and domination. Evil wants to dominate. But what do they do? They take the ring of power, the ultimate advantage, and they take the two weakest characters in the fellowship and they send them right into the heart of darkness, into the heart of Mordor. As the battle's raging at Minas Tirith and as Aragorn is doing his thing fighting, the enemy is looking at Minas Tirith, thinking that the ring is there, thinking that Aragorn is about to wield it and and unsheath his sword, and he is indeed fighting, but the real action is happening. His eye is on Minas Tirith, but all the while, as he's looking at this city into the heart of darkness, go these two weak creatures that are just not even noticed. To, up to Mount Doom, they literally crawling on their hands and knees because they're about dead. They're so exhausted, and they take the ring of power, and they throw it into the fire of Mount Doom where it was forged, and they destroy it. And it's such a wonderful picture of the greatest counterstroke and the death stroke to the enemy and the breaking of his dominion being one of utter surrender and weakness. And the thing about Jesus is he didn't, God doesn't bear his holy arm. Jesus didn't attain total victory for us by throwing a ring in a fire. How did he do it? He threw himself in. The eternal Son of God threw himself into the white hot wrath of God the Father Almighty against justly, against sin and evil 
and the way that it destroys God's good earth and us and his creation. And Jesus actually became that sin on the cross as a substitute for us, as a sacrifice. He threw himself in between us and the just punishment of our loving and holy everlasting father. And he was incinerated so that we could be saved, so that we could find peace, so that not only could we be saved, but, but as we are saved and reconciled to the Father, the effects of his salvation go out from us into all the earth, and middle earth, as it were, begins to be restored. The rightful king has returned, and hey, friend, still fighting in Burma, Japanese soldier guy in the early 70s, the war's over. That's what Isaiah almost said Paul, because Paul quotes this verse in Romans 10, saying that's the commission we've been commissioned with, to get that, to relish that, to stop striving, to just fall on Christ by faith, and then to tell everyone we can to proclaim the victory. It's been won. Come home. We sang earlier, come home. It's been done. And this is our work, and this is the message that we've been given. Um. This is how God, the king, rejected by his own people and made to look the fool before all nations, will what? In verse 10. Will bear his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. That picture is a wonderful picture. The arm in the Hebrew Bible is the the arm of God or his right hand, the hand of power. Most of us are right-handed. God is pictured as, God doesn't have hands, you know? But he's pictured as being, it's a way of saying his hand of power. Man, but this takes that to a different level, Right? His arm, you know, when somebody does this, like your dad ever do this before you're about to get spanked, before you're about to get whooped, you know, not time out, but just straight whooped. And, uh, you know, God, can you imagine the eternal almighty God who I read this morning in my quiet time, names the stars, leads them out, leads Orion out on a rope like a little puppy dog to go use the restroom to go TT in the morning or whatever. Like, this is what God does with the Stars that he just breathed easily. No problem. That part of creation is given two short words in the Hebrew Bible. In Genesis 1.16, I believe it is. Et, et hakokavim. The stars also. That's, that's what's given to God making all the stars. This is our God. And he, when he pulls his sleeve up and bears, this is not impressive, this. But when God bears his holy arm, it is impressive and it is terrifying. And how does God do it? What does Isaiah tell us in verse 10? And what do we see fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ? Something that, again, all of us, including, thank God, the enemy of our souls, Satan himself, missed. The way that he was going to choose to show his greatest strength and his greatest glory was to be humiliated through our sin and evil to allow us to nail him to a cross, pinned like an insect, and to become the fall guy for all of us. Which is why, as I was reading with Abdul this morning in, in the back table, John 14, he says to Philip, or one of the disciples, he said, I think it might have been Thomas, he says, I'm leaving, and they say, whoa, we don't even know the way. He says, you know the way. I am the way. If there were another way, 
to peace with God, if there were another way to total creational restoration, if there were another way to be satisfied and to have our sins paid for and to have to become completely clothed in the righteousness of God Almighty, don't you think he would have done it? He did it because he is the only way to the Father and through him, anyone can come. It's bigger than your sin. So much bigger. It doesn't matter what you've done. What matters is that you come to him. Not a religious code, no one else, no other saint. Him. This is the bearing of the arm of God Almighty. A man, the God-man, hanging on a Roman cross. This is what, this is the victory we get to proclaim. This is what we get to tell people. He's done it. He's won. Run to Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, and this is why on his, above his head on the cross was written Jesus, King of the Jews, in the three major languages of the day, the three universal languages, Greek, uh, Aramaic, and, and Latin, um, because it was an expression of his saying, being crucified uh, outside the holy city at the crossroads with all these languages above him proclaiming, I'm dying for all nations. I'm dying for everyone. I'm dying for every sinner who will come to me. The curtain that is dividing my presence in the Holy of Holies from everyone else, from every sinner, is being ripped, and that's my flesh. So come through me, come to me. And what do we see? What did I preach a little bit? Not long enough, because it was long enough. It wasn't as long as I wanted to, because it was the 24th. It was a short gathering. It was a beautiful gathering. We had kids playing in the hay and throwing the hay from the manger up in the air, and that was great. Um, But we got to talk about how in that enigmatic but wonderful and rich passage in Isaiah 9, what is one of the names ascribed to this Messiah who's going to come? Everlasting Father. Not that the Son is the Father, that's heresy, but that he shows us, his name is Everlasting Father. He is the way to the Father. God, there's a time in which God was not creator. There's a time eternal before he made anything in which God existed happy and content and delighted in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what is salvation? Salvation is bringing you into that relationship. But there was a time in which God was not creator, but there's never been a time in which God was not father. Do you know that? There's never been a time in which God was not son, in which the father was not loving the son, in which the son was not loving the father with perfectly, outwardly facing, pour him himself into, saying, I am delighted in you and you in me. And that is the overflow of that, as it were, according to Jonathan Edwards, is the spillover of that delight and that perfect love is, is why anything exists. And what is salvation? It's bringing us back into that and back to the heart of the one who made us for himself. The fatherhood of God is the heart core of the reason that we were created, of our deepest longings. And what does Jesus do? He expresses that, who God truly is to us, with his arms outstretched, saying, this is who God is, this humility, this condescension, this enduring pain at infinite cost to me so that you can come and buy with no money. There's nothing more fundamental at the heart of the universe to who God is than that. And that's what we get to shout from the rooftops. Um, This salvation involves a a removal and an addition. Just briefly, um, the removal we see there in verse one, 
There shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. The circumcision in the Old Testament was a mark of God's people, and it was applied to males only because it was applied to the penis, okay? Um, and it, was a, and it, was, it didn't do anything in and of itself, but it was required as a covering over God's people. Why? Because it was a sign of, it's a mystery, but it was a sign of the thing out of which life comes that produces life, that propagates the human race, you apply a knife to. Blood, you cut. That's counterintuitive. Death has to be applied right at the place of life for you to be my people. And what does that do? It shoots us forward to the cross. Because there was a day God's prophets would later say in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 34, in which that symbol was going to be fulfilled and that it was pointing to what God really wants, which is people that love him, for whom the law has been kept, who have been brought back into peace with him, and who actually want to obey him. Why? Because we've been given circumcised hearts. We've been given hearts that are totally new, and that's a surgery only God can perform. And so what is this saying here? You will, my people will only be people who are circumcised of heart. In other words, a Christian isn't someone who walks the aisle necessarily. You can walk the aisle, or who prays a prayer, or who does a bunch of good stuff, or who goes to church on a Sunday. A Christian is someone who's been fundamentally altered through the work of God alone in Christ Jesus, who has been given a new heart, a new life, and a new spirit. And in the same way, he says, um, under this removal, he says that there will be no one unclean. In other words, every single person that comes to Christ, no matter their past, no matter their present, no matter their future, if they cast themselves on Christ by faith, saying, you died, not just you died, Satan believes that Jesus died, he was there rejoicing but he will never believe that Jesus died for him. He will never say, I deserve what you took. You did it for me, I believe. That is what, that is the faith that is the open hand that receives all the work of God in Christ for you at infinite cost to him and at no cost to you. And that is the faith that cleanses us through the work of Jesus who saves us from all of our sin. So that's the removal, but the addition is that this, this text tells us he doesn't just scour us removing sin and guilt. He clothes us. Look carefully at the language of verse one. It says, put on your strength, O Zion. This is the people of God he's speaking to. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem. In other words, we aren't, our sins aren't just removed. We're given the righteousness of God in Christ. An alien, an other righteousness, and an other beauty, his beauty, his righteousness. When God looks at you, if you have trusted in Jesus, his record, his righteousness, his beauty, that's what, that's what God sees. He sees his son um, received by faith. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Justin read it earlier. It's worth reading again. For our sake, he made him to be sin. God the Father made his son to be sin for our sake. Him who, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Paul uses the phrase in Christ or something signifying it over 170 times in his letters. Faith clothes us in Christ and unites us to him. And who's the one that brings all that to us? Who is the one who brings Jesus himself to us and into us? But the spirit of the living God. The Holy Spirit of the living God brings all the benefits won by Christ to us. Um, and that happens through faith. One commentator says this. He says, the very promise that God through his word would draw near to his people and that they would then truly know his name, as has been said here, has been fulfilled in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So finally, just wanna talk about beautiful feet in verse seven, that wonderful image of someone 
coming down through the mountains to the city, to God's people to announce, despite all of your sins, the victory has been won. And God has bared his holy arm and he's done it in a way that even though it was prophesied, none of us saw. We were all looking at the battle at Minas Tirith. We didn't realize there were two hobbits walking the ring into Mount Doom. We didn't realize that the victory was in the defeat of this carpenter stonemason hanging outside the walls of Jerusalem on a cross. The greatest show of strength and humility and beauty that God has ever and will ever do. um, do. So uh, Isaiah speaks of our salvation. We get to bring good news to publish peace. Peace, there was war between us and God, but now there's peace because of his cross. We get to bring good news of happiness. We get to publish salvation. It should be what our lives are about, publishing this salvation. But it's, also, it's not just salvation, it's kingship. We get to be the people who say, your God reigns. God is reigning. He always has reigned, but now he reigns through Christ who remains a man as our representative. And he will come here on earth to rule and to be with us forever one day. He's, made, he's begun the process of making all things new. Um, and then also, uh, but more than, not more than, but in addition to all that, um, he, this, this passage speaks about recreation. In verse nine, comfort, redemption, and then restoration is spoken of. Um, Isaiah 9, 2, the passage I preached at Christmas Eve, um, says this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. And one of the things I didn't get to unpack there because it was a short gathering that I'll just briefly mention now is that what is Isaiah doing there? He's talking about the fact that Jesus Christ is gonna come as the light of the world to that place that is largely Gentile and to a people that reject him. And he's gonna live up there in that area of sort of Northwestern Galilee. And he's gonna do most of his ministry there. And then he's gonna die in Jerusalem. But what I didn't mention is that this is, to any Jew who reads this, there's darkness, and then behold, light comes. What is that? When I, I should have said it to the kids because they could have gotten the answer, but there's darkness, and then behold, boom, God speaks, and there's light. What does that take you to? Creation, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and every Jew reading this would have known what is gonna happen. God's answer to, to fixing all things, to bringing salvation, but more than that, to bringing a recreation that's gonna make all things new, everything, all the corruption, as far as the curse is found, his reign is going to extend. He's gonna finish it. A child is the answer. A child will be born to us. And what is that child gonna do? He's gonna start a process that's not gonna end until all things are made new. It's going to be a second creation. It's going to be a recreation in which when Jesus died, he didn't just bear our sin. He bore and buried the old order, the old creation, and he left it in the ground. And he rose as the first fruit of something completely new, untouched by sin, and that's where we're headed. And that's what should go forth from us, yes, in this broken earth, but in this broken earth, it's being made new through his reign and his victory. And, we, and so what does that mean? In a nutshell, everything matters. Everything you do by faith, abiding in who Jesus is now and in his finished work, filled with his Holy Spirit, everything you do at your job, wiping baby butts, whatever it is you're doing, working in your garden, spending time with someone, whatever you're doing, loving someone, shutting your mouth when you really wanna tell them off, whatever it is that you are doing, whatever it is that you're putting your hand to, 
in Christ. It matters and it's like a seed that you are planting that's going to grow into something beautiful because he reigns and because he's making all things new in the new heavens and the new earth. Otherwise, if he didn't do what he did, if this child didn't come to bring a new order, no matter how magnificent, no matter how many buildings your name is on, no matter how much money you give, no matter how many wonderful things you do, none of it matters because it's just gonna end in a heat death. But our message is the opposite. Everything matters because of this child, because of this man who died for us, because of this king who's reigning, who's in us, who can be in you too, who's making all things new, and who's gonna come again, right? So, so finishing up, let me just mention a few things to us, we who um, get to herald this. We, our feet get to be beautiful, and I, that's my prayer for us for this year, that 2020 would be the year of beautiful feet for us as the people of God, um, as heralds of this message. But what, is, what does it say in this passage? It says that we've been entrusted with this, and in Romans 10, where Paul comments on this, this means that God trusts us. He trusts us with this message. How are we doing in our lives and in our words? How are we doing? Are we publishing peace? Are we publishing the victory of God? Are we publishing salvation? How are we doing? Um, and I wanted to say it starts with the and comes from the affections having our affections stirred for, having, having what Christ, God has done for us in Christ sink down deep into our hearts. Um, and one thing I can say is if you don't have that affection for the living God in Christ, ask for it. Ask for it. That's one thing Jack Deere, a teacher that I've read and listened to quite a bit, from Ephesians 3, every morning he just prays, Lord, would you give me, would you make me love your son like you love your son? Would you make me love your father, Jesus, like you love your father? Would you sink the truth of the gospel, what you've done for me, down deep in my heart? Let's make that a daily prayer. I think of uh, Will Ferrell in the classic, but the, 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 the modern but classic uh, Christmas movie, Elf, where he falls in love and he busts out of a building or something. He's like, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. Uh, that's what I, try to stop someone like that. Try to stop someone like that from saying that stuff. Try to stop a Christian who bears the name of Christ that's like that from publishing the news of the victory of God in Christ. Try to stop him or her. You won't be able to do it. You won't be able to do it. God, would you cause that to sink down into us so that we are the ones, forget about Elf being in love. That's a joke compared to what God has done for us in Christ. He has given you an identity. He has told you that you are beloved, that you are accepted, that you are cherished, and that all, everything matters and everything's gonna be okay. And he's working it out through you, especially through the hard stuff, especially through the brokenness, especially through the shadows. That's where he's really, that's where he's really working it out. That stuff's not an accident. It's not something just to get through. It's something to know that it's gonna end and to thank the Lord for putting you there and to ask, Know that he's with you and that through the economy of the cross, he's working his power. He's bearing his holy arm in that moment. Can I say that? Okay, and I'm, I'm winding down, don't worry. Um, I'm gonna skip all that. Let me say this. Dwight Edwards said, he said, the unalterable reality is that the quality of life we yearn for and we're made for can only be found in a life of shameless gluttony. Did that surprise you? One of unrestrained feasting upon the bread of life. As God calls out to his people, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. 
unless we're feeding on Christ, none of this other stuff's gonna happen. But as we, it's not a no ultimately, it's a yes. It's the yes of feasting on God through his, through his son, through his word, time in his word, time in prayer, time in Christian fellowship, time with, specific time with unbelievers, especially um, those that live around us, just making time to get them into our homes, to lock into relationship with them, to serve them, to love them, so that we might have the relational credibility to, to publish the news of peace that God has given us, that he's charged us with. So I've got neighbors, I've got, I wanna encourage you to have a top five, make a list of top five, top five neighbors and coworkers, put it on a list, pray for them regularly, walk past their houses, put them on the calendar, invite them over, pray for, I say walk past their houses, it sounds creepy, walk past their houses and pray for them. Prayer walk on a daily or a weekly or a monthly basis. Um, I've got my list of five and I wanna encourage you to make yours. Um, Lecrae, I'll leave you with the words of Lecrae. Who, who would have guessed that one? You would have guessed Lord of the Rings, but not Lecrae. He says this beautiful, he has this beautiful song, Beautiful Feet. I wish I could quote the whole thing. It's wonderful, but listen to it. He says, you hold the truth that saves, so run and shout it to the world. They can't believe in something they ain't never heard. Go, 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 and run with those beautiful feet. And that's what Paul says in Romans 10, commenting on this. He says, how the best thing in the world in the history of ever has happened. It's already happened. Think of that guy in, in the forest of Burma, sitting there 30 years later, poor sap, didn't realize the war was over. Peace had been made. All your sins removed, all righteousness conferred upon anyone who will come to Christ. And he says, but how will they believe on Christ if they never heard of him? And how will they hear unless someone preaches? God has given us that opportunity to be the ones that he sends out into not even the world, into this world, which actually is populated with people from almost every nation on earth. So we saturate this area, we claim this geography that he's given to us, one by one, we publish peace to them in the name of Christ and with our beautiful feet, we'll see things that in eternity will go, wow, all this change I didn't even know. So let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. It is always good. You are good. Your word is Christ. What are you like? We need to look no farther than Jesus with his arms out, outstretched, loving us, loving us to death. Oh, may we be a people of beautiful feet. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.